Hello and welcome to Second Look. I am your host, Benjamin Green, and this is the show where we talk about having an integrated life and how that bears itself out in politics, culture, and faith. It is good to be back after, what, like a month off? <laughs> I did not intend to take so much time off, and Caleb did not intend for me to take so much time off, but we had three weeks in a row where circumstances just did not work out for me to get an episode out, so my apologies for that, but it's good to be back. Today, we are finally going to talk about the long-awaited episode about our towns and cities and what we can do, how we can know whether or not we're building our cities and towns the right way. This conversation, I kicked it off in my episode just after the the big football game that comes at the end of the NFL year that I don't know if I'm allowed to say on this podcast or not. Uh, <laughs> my episode after that game, where I talked about sports, and then I ended that episode by talking a little bit about stadiums, um, well, toward the end, and I thought that from there, it would be a natural flow to do the following week an episode about um, building a good city and town. And I gave you a little bit of homework, and then here we are, like, a month and a half after that. But enough talking about what went wrong. Let's just get right into it. How do we know if we're building our cities a good way. How do we know what makes a good city or a bad city? Well, to answer that question, we have to first talk about what a city is and why cities exist at all. Cities exist essentially for choice. People build cities, people live in cities so that they can have more choices. The bigger the city you live in, the more choices you have. So a good city recognizes that about itself, that it should have lots of choices, lots of options. Well, another reason that cities exist is just because people are social creatures, and we tend to like to be close to other people. Now, there are always going to be some people for whom that is not true, but by and large, people like to live near other people. And um, so it just makes sense to come together into a city or a town. And then a third reason that cities exist is because it doesn't make sense for everyone to live all in one place. So the first one is, I, I said choice, the, and the bigger the city, the more choices you have. The second one, people tend to live close together. So why doesn't 80% of the world's population just live in one gigantic, mega, ultra, huge, ginormous, insanely big city? Well, because it makes more sense for us to spread out. People aren't made to live centralized like that. I believe people are made to be decentralized all throughout the world enjoying 100% of this amazing Earth's geography, and that as people spread out, different cultures and things form, 
and and so it only makes sense that we would all live spread out in little groups as opposed to in one big group. So, as far as why cities exist, there you go. Cities exist for choice, for social connection, and for the sake of spreading out and filling the earth. So then how do we know what makes a city a good one? Well, people have been living in cities from basically time immemorial. Um, and, and so cities are a very old institution, if you will, of human life. And, and so we have some cities today that have been populated for thousands of years. And, and so we can look at them and look at what has been successful and what hasn't been successful. And we can measure based on those places that have had people living in them for thousands of years. If people have chosen to live there for thousands of years, then that city is doing something right. And here in America, we're a very young country. Our oldest places are 400 years old. And, and so everything here is new and a lot of it has been experimental as the world has had this huge growth in population and huge growth in prosperity. America has been right at the forefront of those things. And we've done a lot of experimental city building. We've built cities in ways that have never been done on a large scale before throughout human history. Well, they've been done on a large scale here. There's an organization called Strong Towns that I love and support. It is a great organization. Check out their website at strongtowns.org. Strong Towns, their goal is to get the message out that we're building our cities badly. And they have a 10-step test that they've put out called the Strong Towns Strength Test to see if your town is a strong town. If your town is a strong town, if your city is well built, you should be able to answer yes to each of the following 10 questions. Question number one, on your main street in your town at midday, are there more people than there are cars. Well, this is something that might not seem like a natural connection to you because you might say, well, if there are cars there, then people had to drive the cars there. What's wrong with there being cars on our main street in the middle of the day? Well, cars sit. They get people from place A to place B. And in between the time they're doing that, they sit there and they take up space. People create jobs, people spend money at small businesses, and people make a place um, enjoyable to be around in a city. Imagine a park. If you were to go to a park in a city and it's just you and then just a whole bunch of parked cars, that's not a very exciting park. But if it's you and a whole bunch of other people, it's a lot more enjoyable of an experience. People are more valuable 
to cities than cars are. People pay sales taxes. Cars do not. So in your main street, in your main economic hub of your city, you should see more people than cars because you want people going into and out of shops and restaurants and spending money and 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 supporting your local economy. Strong Towns likes to call humans the, the indicator species of economic health. If you have a good economy, you're going to see people walking around. If you see people walking around, you're going to have a good economy. If you don't see those people, then it means there's something wrong in your city. Now, another reason that this is important is main streets are almost always the most valuable parts of cities. This is usually surprising to people who live in a more suburban area where there might be a lot of strip malls and things on the outside of town, and town just keeps expanding and expanding, and we build new strip malls and new strip malls. You might assume that those Strip malls and things like that on the outskirts of town are the most valuable things to the city, like the big Walmart or even even just smaller businesses, but arranged in that strip mall format. But it's actually not the case. If you look at the value that the city gets per acre of land, the downtowns with narrower streets, with closer businesses... Um, where that it's a more walkable environment, those are astronomically more productive places as far as the city tax base is concerned. So that's another reason why we want to see people downtown, uh, people at Main Street, as opposed to people on the outskirts of town. So that's question number one. On your Main Street at midday, are there more people than cars? Question number two is kind of a funny one, but if there were a revolution in your town, would people instinctively know where to gather to participate? I like this question because it, it's funny to picture there being a revolution in, in my city. Um, I think in my city, people would know where to, uh, to gather. We have kind of in our downtown area, there's a big park. And then right across the street from that big park, there is City Hall. And City Hall has a big grassy area in front of it. And the city holds a lot of events in that area. And, and so I think people would naturally kind of gather in that area. Well, why does it matter that people should know where to gather to participate? Well, the people need a Bastille to storm. No, it, it's just we we need to know because... If our city is designed well, then the people who live in the city will have um, a level of cohesiveness between them. <laughs> Let me put it this way. If a revolution's happening and people don't know where to go, then we can expect to have political dysfunction in the city because it shows that so many people are on a different page from each other. But if a revolution happens in a city and everyone knows where to go, well, then at least in this one thing, everyone is thinking kind of the same way. And so it's more likely that in other areas where we might need to make political decisions within our cities, people are also going to be more on the same page. This, is, this revolution question is a 
a measure of whether your city is designed to reflect cohesion within your community. Question number three. Imagine your favorite street in town didn't exist. Could it be built today if the construction had to follow your local rules? So this, uh, picture the, the, the cutesy street downtown with the little shops and restaurants on it. If, if that street, for whatever reason, didn't exist, a lot of places have adopted zoning codes and lane width regulations for their roads that make it illegal to build places like that today. This is something that's surprising to a lot of people because these are everyone's favorite places. But it would be illegal to build something like that today because it doesn't meet the setback requirements or the parking minimum requirements or the infrastructure requirements. And, and it's not... Zoning policies that do this don't make any sense because the reason we make zoning policies is so that our city is more enjoyable and agreeable for everybody so that more... Um, there, there's some consistency in design within and around the community. And if everyone agrees that their favorite places are these downtown areas with little shops, which I know in my community that's true, people love the downtown area, why does it make sense to make it illegal to build places like that today? It's everybody's favorite place to be, so why shouldn't we be able to build more of it? So you should be able to answer yes to that question. Question number four. Is an owner of a single-family home able to get permission to add a small rental unit onto their property without any real hassle? So this is one where you might start to have a little mental pushback in your mind. There's this phenomenon when we're talking about um, cities and the development of cities. I don't know if you've heard the term NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y, not in my backyard. People tend to have this reflexive, um, visceral turn against development near them. But adding a small rental unit to a property is the most basic way to increase housing options in a community. It's a simple way to add extra income to homeowners. And also, it allows for housing for people of diverse ages. If you've ever lived in a place with a lot of backyard rental housing units, there tend to be a lot of like younger college student types or older um, like retired people types living in them. A lot of times you hear the term a granny flat. You, you want grandma to be able to have her own place, but it's right there in the backyard where she's close if, if she needs anything. A lot of places it's illegal to put in these rental units in your backyard. Many, many, many cities have a one dwelling unit per lot regulation. I believe that's the case in my city, but it's interesting because if you go around the older neighborhoods in town, there are actually several areas where there are multiple um, multiple buildings on a lot. Now those have to be zoned multifamily residential. And so if a homeowner were to want to put up a little rental unit, 
well, then they'd have to get their property rezoned and it would change all sorts of things. It'd be a really huge hassle. This is something that cities should make it easy for people to do because it doesn't make sense if someone owns land and they have empty space in their yard and they want to use that space in their yard for something that's going to be economically productive for the city, the city should want them to do that. So if somebody is going to be collecting rental income from a unit in their backyard, they're going to be spending that rental income or saving that rental income to then invest in some other thing. Cities should want that kind of economic growth, easy economic growth that adds little to no infrastructural burden to the city when it's done at a small scale. Uh, and, and it just generates more revenue for residents of the city at very little cost to anybody else. So your town should be able to answer yes people can add a rental unit to their property with, without any real hassle. Question number five. If your largest employer left town, are you confident the city would survive? This, to me, conjures up memories, memories, images of the factory town where someone from New York comes in and buys the factory and shuts it down and the whole town dies. We've all seen movies about that. But it happens in real life. Um, these cities are the, the biggest employer in town is someone without a vested stake in the community and they might just ship off. They might close the factory or close the distribution center. Cities should not be dependent on one person to keep the city solvent. One corporation, excuse me, to keep the city solvent. It shouldn't be up to the whims of someone who doesn't even live there to determine the economic future of a city. Now, a lot of cities maybe aren't as extreme as the factory example, but maybe you have four or five. Um, that's what we have here in my city. We have a lot of people who work for Walmart Corporation, and we had until recently a Sam's Club, and a whole bunch of people lost their jobs when Sam's Club closed. A whole bunch more would lose their jobs if Walmart were to close or if they were to decide they wanted to move their Walmart distribution center somewhere else. Our largest employer in town is our school district, so they're not going to ship up and leave town. And that's a good way to have it. But we have several chunks of other employers, corporations that are headquartered elsewhere, that employ hundreds of people in our town who would be out of a job if they decided to leave. That's not a very strong way to build a town. A better way to build a town is to have less dependence on people outside your community. This is why local business is better, because local businesses tend to employ fewer people. So if they end up closing, it doesn't impact as big of a chunk as your community. And also, those people then have an easier time bouncing back into another local business. If, say, in, in my example from a minute ago, say Walmart were to leave my town entirely, that would be hundreds of people suddenly at the same time looking for jobs, and, and it would just flood the job market, and eventually that would adjust, but there would be a large chunk of people who would either have to move or go for a long period of time unemployed, and that's not ideal. 
So your city should be able to say, yes, if the largest employer were to leave town, the city would survive. Question number six. Is it safe for children to walk or bike to school and many of their other activities without adult supervision? Can a child go from home to school to a park to a friend's house and back home by themselves walking or on their bike? Well, why is that important? you might think. Why do we want to expose kids to the danger of being out and about on their own? Shouldn't we be glad when uh, when adults are around to supervise? Well, kids actually, f for one thing, it's interesting because this is actually the safest time it's ever been to be a kid in America. Kidnappings and things like that are at all-time statistical lows, and yet even though that's true, um, people seem to be getting more and more and more extremely cautious about letting kids go out and have freedom of their own. We all know our grandparents were allowed to walk all over, go all over their cities, but our children are not afforded those same privileges our grandparents had, that same level of freedom. And I think that this is reflective of the fact that we've been designing our cities poorly. We've made them adversarial to children. I know that in the neighborhood I live in, I would not be comfortable um, letting my daughter, when she's very small, um, like five or six, I would be comfortable letting her walk to school. There's a school nearby. But I would not be comfortable letting her walk to a park because in order to do that, she would have to cross a six-lane road five-lane road. And, and that's just not something I'm comfortable with my six-year-old kid doing. Well, cities should accommodate the weakest ones among us. They should accommodate elderly people, and they should also accommodate children. Children should be able to go around and do things. Parents should be able to, if they want to, give their kids the option of running around in their neighborhood without being worried that they're going to get run over by a car going 40 miles an hour on the next street over. And another thing is, if a city is safe for kids to move around in, well, then you know that it's safe and easy for adults to move around in too. And the more adults are out of their house and moving around in your community and spending money at restaurants and shops, the better it is for your local economy. So if your city is a strong city, you should be able to say, yes, it's safe for children to walk or bike to school and to walk or bike to their other activities without adult supervision. Question number seven kind of touches on what I was talking about a moment ago. Are there neighborhoods where three generations of a family could reasonably find a place to live all within walking distance of each other. So this, elderly people tend to not want to live in big homes because they're harder to take care of. Young people tend to not be able to afford big homes. Well, the generation in between, the people in their 40s or 50s, might be able to afford a big home and tend to want to live in a big home. It's kind of the, the prime of middle-class life is that era. Well, can, can an elderly family 
and a, a more middle-aged family and a young family find place to live within walking distance of each other, but so that they don't have to share a property. So what you should picture here is neighborhoods with varied types of buildings. Um, most neighborhoods that are built after World War II in this country, most of them are suburban style, where we have a lot of the same kinds of houses all in a line on a street, and they're all about the same size, about the same property value, and that's by design. But that's not the way cities had been built for thousands of years prior. Cities have housing options, good designed cities. So we might have on one street a row of shops with apartments above them that college students might be able to afford to live in. And then a couple streets over, so maybe a 10 minute walk away, we have a row of townhomes that an elderly family might be able to live in and afford. And then a couple streets over from that, we might have a section with single family detached homes that the more middle aged, middle class people would like to live in, maybe with a little yard. If all these things are within walking distance of each other, then it enables families to live close without actually living on the same property. And that's a net positive for communities because we want multiple generations to be connected to the places in our community. We don't want to be a community where all the college students leave town and then hopefully you're lucky enough that some of them move back. And we also don't want to be a community where every single elderly person has to move into an assisted living facility in order to get the, the care that they need just because their families can't keep track of them. So we should have neighborhoods where three generations can reasonably find a place to live within walking distance of each other. Question number eight. If you wanted to eat only locally produced food for a month, could you? So this question might seem counterintuitive because as our food has um, exploded across the country so that if you go to your local supermarket, you can have food from California and Virginia and Texas and Mexico and all over the place, all right next to each other. Well, why does it matter? We have this economy where we trade food and it makes the food prices lower, why does it matter that I should be able to eat only locally produced food for a month? Let's just imagine that there's some sort of huge infrastructure disaster. Or worse, some sort of terrorist attack um, that makes... So let's just say I live in a a, a town that's very dependent on Phoenix for things. Phoenix is a huge city surrounded by big cities. Uh, it, it's a very big urban area. And my town is a bit farther away from that, but it's very dependent on that ecosystem. But let's just say, like, God forbid, someone were to drop a nuclear bomb um, in the southern part of the Phoenix area. Well, that, that would make that area inaccessible hazardous to your health um so then what would you eat 
the trucks couldn't get through, the trains couldn't get through, you would be forced to eat food from your local community. So in case of that disaster, in case such a disaster were to happen, your local community should be able to sustain itself in food production. It's okay to trade with other communities to drive down costs and increase the diversity of what you can find and buy and eat. That's great. But it shouldn't, you shouldn't be dependent on other communities to feed yourselves. Question number nine. Before building or accepting new infrastructure, does the local government clearly identify how future generations will afford to maintain it? This one's a big question with that suburban pattern of development we were talking about. And if you look at the Strong Towns website at all, you'll see they have very good information on this question. But I will just give you briefly here. A lot of times when a new development is coming into town, this construction company will come to the city, apply for the permits to build their thing. The city will clear it. And the construction company says, okay, we're going to build all these houses. We're going to build all these roads and sidewalks. We're going to put in street lights. We're going to put in fire hydrants. We're going to put in pipes and electrical and gas lines. We're going to put all of it in at our cost. On the condition that 30 years from now, the city takes over the maintenance of it. And what we find is that these economic developments never pay off. The, the costs that the city incurs 30 years down the road outweigh the, the, the costs, that the, the, the benefits to the city of having the construction company pay to put it in. So in a city like Tucson, Arizona, where suburban growth exploded in the 1950s and 1960s, and businesses were, construction companies were using this model, the city expanded hugely. And here we are, decades later, the city of Tucson is covered in potholes, and the city can't afford to fix it. The, it's covered in crumbling roads and streetlights that are out and cracking sidewalks, and, and the city is barely able to afford emergency-level maintenance operations. So they can basically only afford it when, when things break badly enough, then we can fix it. That's not an optimal way to live. It's a very, building this way is a very easy way to have a dilapidated city. So if, if new infrastructure, new roads and sidewalks and lights and pipes are going to be built in a city, the government needs to have a specific detailed plan for how to pay for it. And it's okay if the plan doesn't work. You know, we can only plan so far. But it's reprehensible to make these decisions without the plan because that's just not responsible and it's asking for trouble down the road for your kids and grandkids. And then question number 10. Does the city government spend no more than 10% of its locally generated revenue on debt service? So that's something that just makes sense. If you're listening to the show, you're probably a fiscal conservative. Cities should not run up large debts. 
Um, the, the monies that come into the city through sales or property taxes, those should um, be used for things other than paying off interest on debt. Um, because we want our city's money to be productive. We don't want our cities to be stuck in a muck of debt for decades. So that's the strong town's strength test. And if you can answer a yes to those questions, the more you can, the stronger your town is. If you want more detail on any of these questions, like I said, please check out strongtowns.org. They are amazing, and I believe they are the most important voice in American politics right now. Sadly, not very many towns in this country are strong or on their way to being strong. And that's where the second look connection to all of this comes in. On this show, we're all about living an integrated life. You are a member of your community. You have an active stake in that community. You should care whether your community is being built in a strong, sustainable, resilient way, or whether it's being built in an unthinking way, just copying what everybody else is doing, going with the status quo that will bankrupt your city in the future. And you, since you care about that, should do something about it. Make it a regular part of your life to go to your city council meetings, or maybe you just call a city councilman and share your opinion on it. Or maybe you, even all you do is just post on Facebook about it. Um, or maybe you can financially support an organization like Strong Towns that is um, working to fix some of these problems for us. Whatever it is, you being the member of your community that you are, you should care about this enough to take action. You should care about this enough to make it a part of your life to see that your community is strengthened. And that is what I would like to see you take away from this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in today. It was a bit longer of an episode than I planned, but I could talk about this stuff all day long. So we kept it shorter than that. Like I said at the beginning, my name is Benjamin Green. You can find me on Twitter at BeGreenAZ. That's the best place to contact me. Make sure to check out all things Outset at our new domain, OutsetNetwork.com. We've redone the website and it looks great. And so you can find everything Outset there, including all of the other shows in the Outset Podcast Network, OutsetNetwork.com. And also at Outset Network on any of your social media. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll see you next time.